If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The great discovery that Henry James made about women, which made him such an interesting male writer about women, is that he realized that women are probably just like men and that they don't think very differently and that they don't have a a completely different way of looking at the world or a completely different kind of a brain. That was Sarah Churchwell talking about the writings of Henry James. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Over the next few weeks, BBC Radio 4 is going to be exploring the work of the 19th and early 20th century Anglo-American author Henry James whose books include such classics as The Ambassadors, The Portrait of a Lady and Washington Square. Alongside dramatisations of several of his novels, there will be a documentary on James, co-presented by Professor Sarah Churchwell of the School of Advanced Studies. I spoke to Sarah a little while back to find out more about the life and writings of this pivotal figure in British and American cultural history. And I began by asking Sarah 
What first interested her in James's work? I actually approached Henry James as a kind of challenge. He was somebody that I had heard about as a difficult writer and as a challenging writer. And I was working on my postgraduate degree in uh, American literature and the American novel. And so I kind of had to read Henry James, but I really looked on him as a as a mountain that I had to climb. And um, and so I did it, you know, in a kind of spirit of duty and in a kind of spirit of, you know, completism, I suppose, um, starting to make my way through his novels and realized about, you know, two novels in that this wasn't at all uh, a difficult or a chore and that um, and that he was absolutely brilliant and that the reputation that he had for difficulty, which had preceded him, certainly as far as I was concerned, I didn't think was was merited. So I've been on a kind of Henry James, you know, evangelical train ever, ever since. It's interesting that you talk about this reputation you feel he has for difficulty. If you don't feel that's justified from his books, why do you think this reputation exists? Well, look, he is he can be difficult to read on the level of the sentence, but that's true of some of his books and not all of them. So one of the things to bear in mind about James is that, you know, he had a very long and very prolific career. And one way to think about him as a writer is that he basically began as a Victorian novelist and he ended as a modernist. Um, you know, James died um, just as James Joyce was writing writing Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. So modernism was emerging, and Henry James absolutely helped uh, create literary modernism. So late James is challenging in the way that James Joyce can be challenging. It's challenging on the level of the sentence. It's not always clear um, what exactly is happening, to whom, when, under what circumstances. You wait sometimes a long time for a verb in the sentence. You're not really sure what, what it is that's actually happening. But at the beginning of James's career, he wrote in a much more straightforward manner in a way that was recognizably similar to his contemporaries like George Eliot or even um, Charles Dickens. So I think that that in that sense, there really is a kind of, um, there's something in Henry James for everyone, for people who like works that are more stylistically challenging than, than late James, which includes novels like The Wings of the Dove, The Golden Bowl, to a certain extent, The Ambassadors. Those are perhaps a little bit more difficult. But even so, I think all of that difficulty is is a little bit overstated. We now live in a world, I think, where where books are so explicit. They're explicit in in the sense that, you know, we we use so-called explicit language. Um, we're, we're much clearer about what's going on in every sense, uh, um, sexually in terms of in terms of the language that we're willing to use, you know, vulgarity or obscenity, and explicit in terms of the clarity with which we tend to tell our stories. But and, and those stories tend to be very full of action and, and incident. They're, of course, influenced by the movies. But James lived in a pre-cinematic world, and his sense of what could be interesting is very much about the implicit and the subtle and the nuanced. So he is as difficult as somebody trying to do something complex is likely to be. He's not a simple writer with a simple view of the world or a simple story. But as I say, even so, in his earlier books, he is pretty simple and straightforward. Daisy Miller, Washington Square, you know, Roderick Hudson. These are very, very straightforward books to read. Coming on to Henry James, the man himself, what kind of a start to life and upbringing did he have? 
Well, Henry James had a very eccentric and unusual upbringing, um, certainly for the time, but even for now. He was the grandson of a wealthy Irish immigrant. So his father was really part of the of the leisure class. Um, he didn't have to work for a living. They had they had rents on which they lived, you know, from uh, from properties that they'd inherited. And James Sr., Henry James's father, who's confusingly also called Henry James, was a, a very, very eccentric man. He was a, a sort of crank, for want of a better word. He was a, a kind of crank philosopher. And um, and before James was very old, Henry James had, had taken his small family, which consisted of Henry James, his sister Alice, who would later become famous for her diaries, and his older brother, William James, who was the father of American psychology, um, the great um, pragmatic philosopher and psychologist. And he'd taken his three children and his wife on a tour of Europe, which became a kind of never-ending tour. So uh, James was was raised in this very peripatetic upbringing across the continent of Europe. They lived mostly in hotels, and they would occasionally go back to New York. People sometimes think of Henry James as a, as a New England writer, but he was raised in New York, and he always saw himself very much as a, as a New Yorker, and uh, of course as an American abroad. And so Europe was really part of his childhood, part of his consciousness. He was fluent in in several languages. His, his French was beautiful. And that's why, as an adult, he, he came back to Europe, because in many ways, Europe really was his home. And how much did this upbringing, this unusual upbringing, then influence the work he was to produce? Oh, well, I think it absolutely influenced. It influenced him on every level. It it, it made him an American abroad. And that, as, as I can attest after after almost 20 years here in, in Britain, is a very specific thing. It means you're neither American nor European, but you are an American who lives in Europe and you have this kind of dual viewpoint. And that's very much who James became. And that very much became his subject matter. We um, we talk about the idea of the American innocent abroad as a theme in a lot of fiction, um, both American and European fiction, but particularly in American fiction. And people say, oh, you know, Henry James, he was always interested in the, in the encounter between Americans and Europeans. But it's important to remember that he really kind of pioneered that. Um, that wasn't really seen as a, as a perennial subject matter, as a perennial theme um, for storytelling in the way that it is now. He really, he really carved that out and made Made it his own. He was very much a transatlantic figure at, at this time. And how, how different would British and American social attitudes have been at the times that he was writing? Well, again, he, he lived a long life and his work spanned um, many decades. So the relationship between America and Europe was in flux and he was sort of riding the leading edge of that wave. So at the beginning of his career, America was very much seen as a backwater. Um, when James came into adulthood at the time of the American Civil War, which is in the 1860s. And so, you know, I mean, Chicago wasn't yet a city, right? I mean, the West was still not settled. When you think Think about the prototypical Western of, you know, cowboys and, and Indians in, in you know, California. Um, that, those stories take place in the 1870s and 1880s. As James was coming to Europe, America was still being settled. He was born in the 1840s in a New York that would be unrecognizable to us today. America was seen by Europe but saw itself as a cultural backwater that had not produced any great artists, that did not have any real kind of 
even yet commercial power, although its commercial power was growing. By the time James died, he died during the First World War. By the time he, he died, America was on the cusp of the American century, and that power had really shifted westward over the last uh, 50 years. And, and that was um, the, the world that, that James was chronicling. And so do you see through the course of his books how these relationship between Britain and America was changing? Absolutely. You know, by the, by the end of his novels, a story like um, The Golden Bowl is very much the, the kind of plot of, of Downton Abbey, right? It's the it's the story of the American heiress whose money is is being brought to European aristocracy to, to keep, you know, the landed gentry afloat. Um, and, um, you know, that, that sort of Consuela Vanderbilt story is uh, is very much what, what James was seeing around him. And it was a story that he wrote uh, more than once. Once, but at the but at the beginning of his career, he was much more interested in in the in the idea of the innocent American abroad, of this kind of American who didn't even know what to expect in Europe. Well, whereas by by the time he died, by the time of the the First World War, all kinds of of changes in in uh, the ways that stories were told in in the magazine culture, in the coming of film, meant that Americans, even even quote unquote ordinary Americans, small town Americans, had a much better idea of what Europe was like and. And they partly had those ideas through reading the stories of Henry James, books like Daisy Miller, um, which was his first great success, which is a story about an American girl um, in Rome. And so Americans were forming their ideas of what Europe would be like, partly through novels like James's. I mean, that was actually something I was going to come on to. So how much impact did Henry James's works actually at the time have on the people who read them? Well, um, he, it's hard to say how much impact he had on, you know, on an individual reader, but uh, culturally his impact was was very great indeed. He was a bestseller as a, as a young man, um, as I say, with, um, with Daisy Miller, with Washington Square, some of his early and more accessible, still more accessible works made him a very, very well-known figure. And um, he he proceeded to write more and more challenging books. And as is so often the case when artists try to do things that are more challenging, they can sometimes leave their audiences behind. And that's certainly what happened with James. So his work, as it got more difficult and more ambitious, it also got less popular. It was, it was speaking less to mass tastes and it was becoming more niche. But he remained very, very influential. So he was somebody that other writers were very conscious of. He was somebody that set up a kind of literary agenda. He was somebody that you had to uh, take into account. He wasn't a, a negligible figure. So for the next generation of writers, someone like Edith Wharton, for example, who, who was not really next generation, but was uh, younger than James and became a friend of his, you can see instantly how influenced she was by his novels. But then the next generation would really be writers like Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. And although they were not as obviously influenced by James in terms of their style or their subject matter, although of course they both also went abroad and wrote as Americans abroad, um, they had to they had to wrestle with his influence. They had to take him into account. Um, he comes into their correspondence. He comes into their essays. They're thinking about uh, Henry James and what he meant for American letters. 
You mentioned Edith Wharton, but um, which other writers did he actually interact with on a personal level at this time? James was a very, very sociable figure, and he he knew all of the the writers and artists of his day. He was very close friends, for instance, with uh, George Du Maurier, who became a best-selling author when he wrote um, Trilby, the famous story about Svengali, and was, of course, the the grandfather of of Daphne Du Maurier. And everybody from kind of George Du Maurier through, uh, he was friends with many uh, French writers. He was friends with uh, Turgenev. He was friends with um, Edmund Goss. He was he was notably not friends with Oscar Wilde, although they knew a lot of the same people, um, but um, he didn't care much for Wilde. But he was friends with Henry Adams, whose great education of Henry Adams is one of the, the most important American autobiographies. So many of these names are not household names anymore, but um, they were during James's lifetime. And he was also friends with artists. He was good friends with John Singer Sargent, for example. He knew Whistler um, he, he he traveled in very very artistic and cultured circles. What kind of a man was Henry James in his later life? Uh, well, in his later life, he struggled a bit with depression. He lost his family. He lost his his beloved brother, his sister, his parents in in um, a fairly short span of time. And then the coming of the First World War um, meant that he was he was wrestling with depression and illness um, toward the end. But but he he isn't a man that you can summarize quickly. He was a, a very complex. He was a genius, and and geniuses can't I don't think really be encapsulated. He had a tremendous sense of humor. He had um, a great uh, kind of mischievous, wicked, gossipy side. He had uh, a great kind of serious side. He was incredibly ambitious for his art. As I say, he was on the one hand very social, but he was clearly a, a gay man, um, what we would now call a gay man. He was he was closeted. He chose to remain a bachelor. He never married. So he was in many ways a lonely man as well for all of his his, his sociability, and he he was somebody who needed to restrict his sociability in order to focus on his art, and that could sometimes lead to loneliness and depression. So he was a very complex figure. He's not somebody that you can kind of you know do a do a quick thumbnail portrait of. And his portraits of women are very interesting within his books. Could you please tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I'm a big fan of his um, portraits of, of women because um, Henry James made this really remarkable discovery, in my view, when he began writing about women. He wrote about uh, Daisy Miller um, in the novel of that name. He wrote about Catherine Sloper in his early novel, Washington Square. And it's as if those two prepared him for his first great female character, Isabel Archer, in The Portrait of a Lady, which was published in 1881. And the great discovery that Henry James made about women, which made him such an interesting male writer about women is that he realized that women are uh, probably just like men and that they don't think very differently and that they don't have a, a completely different way of looking at the world or a completely different kind of a brain. Um, he just assumed that women probably would um, think much like he did and that they would react as he would react to circumscribed circumstances. Sorry, that's not a very good turn of phrase. But he recognized that um, that women in his era lived uh, under real social restrictions. There were all kinds of things that women in the Victorian era couldn't do or were coerced into not doing, uh, shamed into not doing. And he was very alert to that kind of um, social coercion and the restrictions that it placed on women. And so, so he, I think, simply imagined how he would feel in similar circumstances. And so he writes these women who are full 
um, autonomous, integral human beings. They are intelligent. They think about the world. They don't just think about getting a husband or a new pair of shoes. They're engaged in politics. They're engaged in ideas. They're engaged in their own thoughts about the world and their own experiences. And um, and he could imagine women who were just as fully human as any man. And 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 I you know obviously I was being facetious when I said that that was a great discovery because it shouldn't have been. And yet he remains one of the few male writers to ever work that out. At the time, was there any kind of backlash to the way he presented women? Because it was quite different from social norms at the time. Well, yes and no, because he didn't do the thing that, for example, Flaubert did with Madame Bovary. Um, he, he tended not to condone adultery, for example. So his books, although in his books adultery happens, he tends to, particularly in the in the, the early books, it, it, it tends to, to, if not be punished, it tends to be something that the novel makes clear is, is problematic in some way. So he wasn't really, um, you know, kind of pushing the social envelope in that regard, at least at least not early on. But by the end, he was. I mean, with a with a book like The Ambassadors, which is one of his late novels, which um she began in nineteen hundred, his publisher did think that it was that it was a bit too risque. And it does have an adultery at the center of of the story. And and part of the problem that the publisher had with that story was precisely that um nobody seemed to suggest that it was going to ruin people's lives to have this affair. And that in fact a lot of the characters in the novel come down on the side that the that the affair was very good for everybody involved and that was a bit um that was a bit rich for um for James's publishers they thought that was that was a bit um racy and and it was one thing to have an adulterous couple it was another thing to suggest it was good for them coming back to the transatlantic idea anglo-american relationships are very much under the spotlight nowadays how do you think a figure like henry james would have felt about the current situation? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think that the situation in, in American political life would have been so unimaginable to somebody like James um, that I think, he, you know, this was a man of tremendous imagination and he understood that American cultural life tended in, in certain kinds of directions. As I said at the beginning, he he was, you know, he was very much coming out of an idea of America as a, as a kind of cultural backwater. Um, so in one sense, you know, he knew Melville's work and, and Melville, if he doesn't quite predict a Trump character, but in his novel, The Confidence Man, there or, or in Mark Twain in, in um, the Duke and Dauphin characters in the Huckleberry Finn, there's a there's a kind of old tradition in America of the trickster con man, a huckster figure. So it's not that Trump would have been an unimaginable figure to James, but I certainly think that he would not have been able to envision the degradation and debasement of American political discourse and civil discourse uh, to the degree that that we have found ourselves in. I, I think he, I mean, you know, he, he would only have just been absolutely horrified. And just one last question. Do you have a favourite Henry James book and why? Yeah, my favorite uh, James book, although The Portrait of a Lady is very, very high up there, but my favorite book of his overall is is The Ambassadors. And it's my favorite because I think it's utterly hilarious. And it has at its center one of my favorite characters in all of fiction, who is this absolutely wonderful, wrong-headed, but well-meaning man called Lambert Strether. And he's absolutely one of my favorite people in the world, even though he doesn't exist in the world. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. 
That was Professor Sarah Churchwell. The documentary, entitled Love Henry James, The Master, is due to air this Thursday, the 27th of July, at 11.30am on BBC Radio 4. And do check your listings information for details of the Henry James dramas on the same station. Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place on the 6th to 8th of October in Winchester, and then the 24th to 26th of November in York. We have a fantastic array of speakers, including Alison Weir, Dan Jones, Charles Spencer and Janina Ramirez. Head to historyweekend.com for more information and to purchase tickets. And that is all for today's episode, but we will be back on Thursday with more from the world of history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. <laughs>